This is episode 307 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are The Location and Planning of Your Bug-Out Camp or Cabin and Five Alternative Flowers You Can Make Using Your Food Pantry. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. Hey, it's time to finally advance your preparedness goals by starting a micro biz and earning a little extra money for your family's budget so that you can pay down debt so that you can get better prepared. And so if you are interested in finding out some more information, come to microbiz.biz or just go to the prepperwebsitepodcast.com. All right, guys, let's go ahead and, well, actually, before we jump into that, I wanted to let you know there was a comment on episode 304, we um, we talked a, l- a little bit about dogs there, the best of breeds uh, for survival. And uh, so Ed left a comment and he said, and I don't know if I'm going to say this right or not, uh, look into the Bouvere de Flanders, absolutely a great all-round dog, herding breed like the German Shepherd, used in, the bo- in both wars in many capacities, can haul carts, good nose, good watchdog, all-weather coat, Great with children, protective and smart, used by the police and military, excellent temperament, and great breed to live with. So that's a, another dog there possibly to add to uh, maybe your list if you are looking for dogs for uh, the end of the world or you know just a, a man's best friend that uh, could do some double duty in, uh, in you know during the end of the world, right? SHTF. So uh, definitely go check that one out. I'm going to look that one up because I've never heard of that one. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our first article. It comes to us from BackdoorSurvival.com. And a very interesting article. It's called The Location and Planning of Your Bugout Camp or Cabin. So let's go ahead and jump right into this one. Planning a bugout camp means looking at your situation on all levels. A million scenarios can play out. It can be easy to get distracted and miss out on small but important factors. This post is going to cover a lot. I hope it helps you consider your situation and improve your plan or even get started planning your permanent bug out location or how to settle on where to camp each night if you plan on being nomadic. Everyone has unique factors to consider when it comes to a bug out camp plan. There is no one size fits all strategy. Conditions can change rapidly. So rural versus urban. It is possible to be the gray man no matter where you live. However, the approach you take is going to be somewhat different. I actually have little experience living in an actual town, let alone a big city. I think some of the basic considerations are the same, but in an urban situation, there can be a lot of nooks and crannies to hide in, so to speak. There are a lot more people to compete with for supplies and only so many routes to get supplies in. With a large starting population, any incoming supplies may not actually make it very far with so many desperate people along the incoming route. Abandoned buildings, large warehouses, and other locations could be places of refuge, but staying under the radar in an urban area seems like it would be challenging for even a single person, 
let alone a family. The density and potential for running out of supplies quickly in an urban area is part of why so many people plan on getting out if there is the potential for long-term problems. Rural locations have their issues as well. Not having anyone around to help out with defense and being far away from any potential resupply points can be troublesome. If you haven't had a chance to get out and experiencing or experience roughing it in the bush, it might take a while to get adjusted. Okay, so I want to let you know that through this article, there's a lot of subtitles and so a lot of topics that um, the author is going to cover. Some of these topics are a little bit, you know, there's there's more to it and some could be just a couple of lines. It might feel more random if I don't read the subtitles um, it, as I'm going along. So I just want to kind of let you know that. Uh, so we're going to talk about access to water and vulnerability. You can deal with a pretty contaminated source of water if you have a good filter. You need to be able to get to water in a reasonable amount of time. At the same time, you do not want to set up camp too close to a major go-to point for water if you want to avoid major interaction with others. If you are really far out in the bush, then this might not matter as much. You need to keep in mind that places that were once low traffic could become more heavily trafficked in an SHTF scenario. If good water points are limited, then you might find that people use these spots to attempt to ambush others. This is an old trick. Water spots and places where they were boiling water to get salt were extremely dangerous during the old days. Okay, so defensive positions and deteriorating conditions. During tough times, you do not want to let your guard down. The longer an emergency situation lasts, the greater the chance that anyone left is going to turn to violent acts or become desperate and do things they never thought possible. It is amazing just how far this can go. I actually have a hard time reading some historical accounts of what can happen. There is reason everyone seems to be using the catch-all term and euphemism, zombies. This just means people that are at the end of their endurance and will do whatever they have to do to save themselves. At this point, some may have forsaken their own and just really care about themselves. You want the type of visibility that allows you the advantage you want to see but not be seen. All right, so now access to food supply. This is a tricky one because it can vary so much based on the following factors. Resources at hand, how much food do you have, can you make it to a better or safer place to resupply, do you have supplies, skills, or resources to offer others in exchange? While I think you should have at least two weeks of food on you for bugging out, if at all possible, at some point you are going to need to find a source of supplies. You might be able to extend how long you can stay in the bush by knowing how to forage. The viability of foraging during an SHTF scenario depends on overall availability at the time of the event and as time goes on, how others react to the event. If times get tough, the game and wild forage can become a lot more scarce. We live in a world where there seems to be plenty. The population we can support during good or what is considered normal times is not what we can support if it comes down to having to find a portion of your food or grow it yourself. Right? So semi-permanent versus a one-night camp. If you are far out in the bush and it seems like there is not another soul around, then you might risk setting up a temp one-night camp in a place that would be unsuitable for a long-term camp. That first night on the trail, you may have experienced trauma or stressful circumstances that mean you cannot physically make it to a better location. 
Fatigue can kill, so if you feel like you need to stop and there seems to be no truly imminent danger, then this might be a good plan. What about joining up with others, yes or no? During an SHTF scenario, there is strength in numbers, but you must be careful about who you trust. During hard times, people might be a little more sly and willing to do you wrong if they think you have something to offer them. On the other hand, if you can find some like-minded and similarly prepared individuals, or even a place where they are more prepared and need help, then you might think about your options. A long-term emergency could be a tough go alone, but you also don't want to be part of a group that is going to take advantage. If that happens, then slipping off into the night and starting again on your own may be the best scenario. Fire safety and exposing your position. While the danger of wildfire is something to consider, you also need to think about how it will attract attention. The aspect that you set your camp up at can help, but for times like this, you may consider only cooking at night or possibly having some clean burning fuel for your survival stove on hand. The smells of cooking food and smoke can attract unwanted attention. Those first few days out, you may want to try to avoid any food cooking if you suspect others around that you don't want to attract the attention of. The other side of this is that there may be others that feel the same way you do and want to avoid any contact, so even if they have something to tell them someone is in the area, they might avoid you as much as they can. What about dogs at a bug out camp? There are two ways to look at having a dog with you. First off, they are an asset in terms of protection and alerting you to any encroachment into your area. They also offer companionship and morale support. The negatives are that the barking can alert others to your presence too. You also have to have a way to feed and support a dog in your survival situation. The smell and scent marking or urination a dog does can help repel unwanted wildlife from your camp as well, which is a major bonus. Dog survival kits and bug out bags can be put together a little at a time and customized to suit your dog's needs. I love dogs, but some breeds and mixes are just not suited to roughing it for too long. Consider that most of the breeds out there are actually very modern creations that have enjoyed a level of luxury that old and ancient breeds did not. The right type of dog could be an asset as a hunting dog for small game. This could benefit you both by providing some extra protein for you as well as making it easier to feed your dog in the wild. Aspect. What direction should your camp face? The way your camp faces and its location can help protect you from inclement weather. As I type this, I am in a deep holler in our woods. It is sunny and warm, but if I walk to the ridge, it is substantially colder and unpleasantly windy. Putting your semi-permanent or temporary camp in a protected spot can significantly increase your comfort and sometimes your chances of survival, especially if overtaken by a major storm. So what about weather? No one knows how warm or pleasant it is going to be when bugging out. This means you have to plan for all seasons if you want to be truly prepared for whatever nature throws throws at you. You can get away with camping most anywhere during the warmer parts of the year, but do not be fooled into thinking you cannot suffer or even die from exposure when it is 60 degrees and raining and you get wet and cannot get warm. I live in the southeast and sometimes you get conditions where it seems fairly warm, but if you get caught out unprepared on the trail and get wet, the situation can be very dire. 
mountainous ter- terrain can harbor danger in that you can find different weather from one side to the other or even the next holler over. When I look outside, sometimes in the winter, I see the community that is just a mile from us totally blanketed in snow for a day or two after it has melted off entirely from our south-facing slope. What about knowing when to move your camp? While I know that weight is a factor when bugging out, I think that in some scenarios a small set of binoculars would be a major asset. You can climb a tree or use another vantage point to spot trouble. Forest fire is a real danger, especially if you have truly taken to the bush and get a dry period of weather. When more people are in the woods and trying to cook, heat water, etc., there is an increased risk of fire. During a survival situation, no one is going to be as likely to go by the rulebook when it comes to using fire. What about fuel? Heating up food and water takes fuel, even if you have a a few fuel canisters on hand to get you through times when fire is not the path you want to take. There will come a time when you need something else. Some areas have more renewable fuel available than others. Dried and downed wood is a big help, but at the very least you need some access to wood that you can cut and dry if you are setting up a more long-term camp. Below is a stove that I discovered from Camp Chef that offers you the ability to heat a space, cook, and even heat water if you buy the water jacket. And so uh, there is a, a picture here of a of Camp Chef Alpine stove and also a link where you can go get some more information. So it looks like a stove that you can kind of break down and it all fits inside of each other. All right, so moving around a lot, advantages and disadvantages. Moving around a lot can help when it comes to avoiding detection or anyone looking too closely at who you are and what you have. If you are in a family group, it can be harder to move around, especially if you have young kids that can only make so much in a day or need you to literally carry them. A permanent or semi-permanent camp may be best if conditions are harsh. Moving around a lot during frigid temps might not be the best idea if you can establish a good base camp and create some structures that help to protect from the weather. There is something to the lyrics, summertime and the living easy. Major nomadic efforts are best done when it is easier to get by in general. From a historical perspective, it commands my attention that basically all of the major battle campaigns are fought during the warmer parts of the year, regardless of location. So be open to strategical changes. Circumstances can change rapidly, and that means you need to be open to changing your strategy accordingly. Always try to be aware of what is going on as you can. As someone that regularly beats themselves up over being distracted and missing things, I understand how difficult this can be when you have a lot to deal with already. It may actually be easier when you know you're in a situation and know that you need to be on top of your game. Okay, so planning a staged bug out location. This section is for those that have some land bought or are looking to buy so they can have a retreat to go to during an emergency disaster. Location. Remote is a relative term. There are a few places in the U.S. still that you can get a property that is away from a major town. There are a few things to keep in mind, though, when planning a long-term permanent bug-out location. How long can you last with the supplies you have? What comes after that? How many supplies are you prepared to have? Regardless of how well-stocked you are, you will eventually need to be able to get somewhere to buy more stuff. This can be a challenge if you are very far out. 
Mail order is not going to be reliable, possibly for a very long time. Supplies could also become more scarce in some parts of the country rather than others. Are you going to be where you are at the end of the supply chain? I know where I live we are the last on the line to get gas when pipelines break. That is why we go out and fill up our truck and get a five-gallon can of gas when something happens like that. You can beat the crowds. I am not saying you need to go out and hoard all of something in an emergency, but a little extra to get through for a little while is all right. What about the climate? There are challenges to be met in any climate, but those that are bugging out into a climate that has extreme cold and a shortage and a short growing season seem to have it worse. It takes a lot of fuel and food to stay warm and fed. Hot climate challenges can include drought, parasites, and increased chance of infection and disease. Defensive positions. Is your camp close enough that any mass exodus from a nearby city might cause you trouble? And stocking a remote cabin or camp. Proper storage of supplies at a remote site can be a challenge if you don't keep temps controlled. Bugs and wildlife can also make it challenging. The shelf life of your preps is very dependent on how you store them. Don't expect more perishable items like foods that can contain meat or dairy to last near the shelf life they claim if you don't have control over the temperatures. There are some storage containers that can be buried, but I recommend having a system for remembering where you stash them. If your camp or cabin is not somewhere that you are frequent frequently at, then you might be at risk for theft or vandalism. I live in an area that is full of second or third homes. While some people may rent these out sometimes on Airbnb, there are plenty of homes that sit empty for many months of the year. There are security firms that specialize in just checking in sometimes. Of course, these places also have security systems as often as not. Chances are your bug out location is not going to have much in the way of security except for maybe some perimeter fencing, gates, and distance from people. Being off the road a good bit certainly helps prevent major robberies. Thieves like to have a good getaway route when at all possible. Approaching your camp armed is advisable in an SHTF scenario. I try to avoid taking chances when it comes to safety. I recommend having a firearm where where you can get it get to it quickly when approaching your staged bug out location. You do not want to go in unarmed and discover that someone has got into your place and is staying there or in the process of stealing your supplies. Hard times get people doing bad things. If you have stashed firearms and ammo at your location, then someone could be in there and well armed. Approach with caution and observe everything you can. Don't just rush in the door. If you have someone with you, then have them cover you until you see it safe. Water. Hopefully you have a spring or creek at the very least. If not, then above ground water that is very close is a factor you need to consider. Hauling water is something I am very familiar with and it can get old fast regardless of age or ability. And then how are you getting there? The distance you have to travel to get to your bug out location is an important consideration. You need to have a plan on how to get there. It is best to have several alternative routes thought out as well. If the shortest route takes you through a city center, then ask yourself what way could you go to avoid it. A good road atlas or map of your area can be a big help. During SHTF, I would not want to rely solely on GPS to navigate. 
It might be nice if you have it, but a paper copy is a good backup to have. Your method of transportation to your location is also critical to consider, especially if you have a family that will be coming along. A single person in decent shape can cover some ground, but a group of different ages and ability levels is going to go a lot slower. There are a lot of bug out vehicle choices when it comes to transportation. Check out my post on alternative bug out transportation for some ideas. Remember that you may even want to have several transport options. For example, you may drive so far in your car and then use an inflatable boat to get the rest of the way. Maybe your plan is to get in a boat and then make it to your storage facility where you have a motorcycle. There are countless scenarios and plans one can paint in one's mind. Bug out transportation plans are very much something that must be tailored to each situation. There is no perfect transport option for everyone. So don't expect your family to be mind readers or be prodigies. Teach them survival now. I see a lot of comments on Facebook where one spouse or partner is not on board with prepping and planning for major catastrophes. Kids and teens are sometimes left entirely out of the plan. I have also heard still others say that they are divorced so kids spend half their time with one and half with the other and the other person is not okay with them spending much time learning survival skills or being out in the bush. Family situations can sure get complicated. I am getting into this because you may be great at prepping and have a lot of skills, be in decent shape, have a bag all put together that you know like the back of your hand, etc., but that doesn't mean you can expect everyone to operate smoothly and know how to do stuff unless they are shown. During stressful or high-stakes times, it is not the time that you want to be showing them something for the first time or second time. Learning to do anything will take time. So convincing the skeptics. If you have some family members that are skeptical about learning, explain to them that they don't have to be experts at any one skill, but some basic knowledge and supplies can save them in a bad situation like a natural disaster. There is a stereotype about tin hat conspiracy theorists that can make some think that every prepper is doing it due to the government. This is far from the truth. I have been in a few natural disasters and that alone is enough to convince me that prepping is worth it for anyone. Just look at the situation in Puerto Rico and the challenges that they are still facing. The Puerto Rico hurricane disaster made a lot of people consider just how prepared they actually are. Have you given a lot of thought to bug out camp planning? Have you bought land specifically to have a getaway? What steps have you taken to show your family the skills they need to have? I am sure there are plenty of strategies and things to consider that could be added to this post. Please comment if you think of any important factors that I have missed. All right, guys. So that is, I believe it's a, it's a good article there. And maybe we'll get you thinking because a lot of people, usually when they're, when they're newer to preparedness, think that that's going to be the case. I remember talking to uh, someone, a, a, a teacher at the school that I was at, and we were talking about, you know, uh, if things got really bad. And, and, and she you know, her reply to me is like, well, we have camping equipment. And so her idea of, well, it gets really bad. Society gets really bad. So we're going to go out into the woods. You know, that's the typical thought that a lot of people have. And they just, you know, they might be really good at camping. But this is, you're not going back home after, you know, two days after the weekend, right? You're not able to run to the store because you forgot 
you know, an item for the, you know, for dinner or, or whatever. So, you know, it's a whole different situation. So a lot of people think that they're going to go out into the woods and there's a lot of things to consider if that is your plan, you know, and you should have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C. But if that's your plan, you need to really, truly know what you're doing and maybe go out and practice a whole, whole lot, uh, you know, before before it gets to a situation like that. That's why a lot of people say that they're going to bug in instead of bug out. But at the same time, you still, you know, I've always said that you need to have plan A, plan B, plan C, because you're, you know, if you decide to bug in and that's going to be your main, uh, you know, the main way that you handle a survival situation, what are you going to do if your home burns down? What are you going to do if there's a flood? What if, you know, what are you going to do if you're run over? All, all those different kinds of scenarios, you know, begin to play out and something you need to think about. So anyway, good article over here at Backdoor Survival. There's a lot of links. And so you can click on them and get some more information. All right. Our next article comes to us from ReadyNutrition.com. And the title of the article is Five Alternative Flowers You Can Make Using Your Food Pantry. This article is going to cover making flour with, you know, a bunch of different other staples. A lot of the times we have in our mind, you know, there's flour and then there is, you know, wheat that we grind. And that's pretty much all that we kind of stick with. But there's a lot of other ways to make flour, a lot of other staples out there that you can grind down. And so uh, I think this is a great article uh, for a lot of people that maybe have never heard of this, never really considered it. Or even those of you that might be gluten-free, there might be some options here for you. So uh, let's go ahead and read this one again. Like I said, five alternative flowers you can make using your food pantry coming to us from readynutrition.com. Part of my research to become self-reliant is learning how to use the items I have on hand and adapt my cooking style to reflect those changes. A question that has pondered me lately is what would I do when my wheat stores are depleted? How will I make bread and bake goods without wheat? Well, here's the zinger. You don't need wheat to make baked goods. Those who have gluten-free diets have proved that. I have plenty of dry goods on hand, oats, popping corn, rice, and beans that can serve this purpose. Now, I'm not going to jump on the gluten-free diet bandwagon just yet. In all honesty, I like wheat just as much as the next guy, but I do want my family to have more diversity in their diet and incorporating different grains and legumes daily will serve us better in the long run. That said, I'm starting to get creative in finding ways to add them into our diet. Aside from making soups that have different legumes and grains, I've started making alternative flours and the kids don't even realize they are eating healthier. So not all flours are created equal. Alternative flowers have different textures or what I like to call personalities. The one downside to making alternative flour is to know which flour to use in each dish. For instance, baking with nut flours give baked goods a delicious nutty flavor but requires using more eggs to provide more structure. Rice flours tend to be the all-purpose flour that many turn to but can be very dense. Therefore, you need to understand how these ingredients work together. To get the desired effect, cooks usually combine flours. On a side note, you would be amazed at the diversity in flour using different grains to make flour. And because there are so many ways to make flour, you can change up the flavors whenever you want. For an all-purpose flour, you typically want to combine 40% whole grains like oats, quinoa, 
corn, brown, rice, flour, etc., and 60% starches like potato, rice, cornstarch, tapioca flour, etc. The gluten-free girl has some excellent recipes for making alternative flours. And, and so there is a link here to the gluten-free girls. Okay, so what to use in place of gluten? Gluten, which comes from the Latin word for glue, provides elasticity and strength to traditional wheat-based doughs. Without this rubber band-like protein, gluten-free bread dough is lacking the essence of what gives bread structure. Many gluten-free cooks use exanthin gum as an alternative to gluten. Gluten-free cooks consider this the holy grail of baking. When I started using alternative flours, I steered clear of this ingredient because, frankly, the name freaked me out. It's also highly processed, so I tried to avoid that altogether. I looked for alternatives to exanthem gum and found a few that I have grown to like. Chia seeds are a nutritional powerhouse and can either be sprinkled into baked goods or can be ground and used in conjunction with other flours. Gelatin is another ingredient to use in lieu of exanthem gum. When gelatin is combined with water, it creates a gel-like substance which can be used in baking to make dough stretchy and retain moisture in baked goods. Teff flour is another wonderful ingredient that adds stretchiness to dough. So make use of your grinder. Your grinder can be a wondrous thing and can be used for more than grinding wheat berries. I have used my grinder to grind whole beans, lentils, and different grains to make Ezekiel bread. Here are some suggestions for delicious alternative flours and recipes on how to make them. Number one is rice flour. White and brown rice are one of the more popular flour alternatives. These small grains can be ground to make rice flour, a tasty alternative to wheat flour. The flavor of the rice flour is very mild and adaptive to many dishes. Sweet brown rice has a higher fat content than regular rice flour, which means the flour mix won't require as much of the extra gums or flours to help it bind. Beans are a very versatile prep item and even used to make flour. Not to mention bean flour is a great way to add protein to your baked goods and can easily be ground into flour using a hand mill. Popular beans to use when grinding into flours are garbanzo beans, navy beans, pinto beans, and lentils. Bean flours are excellent thickeners and are very popular in soups. White bean flours can be used to make cream-based soups. Simply add one-third cup white bean flour and two cups of stock and any additional ingredients you want. To make this flour, simply add dry beans to your grinder and grind until you get the desired flour texture. An added bonus to grinding beans is you can make refried beans in five minutes. This would be an excellent to have on hand for an off-grid emergency or if you are low on fuel. Instant refried beans. Three-fourths cup of pinto or black bean flour and one cup water or stock. Allow water or stock to come to a boil. Add bean flour and stir in until incorporated. Cover pan for five minutes. All right, in the comment section, someone said that that did not work at all. And so uh, just, you know, just want to give you a heads up on that one. Number three, corn flour. Corn flour has many applications, but is commonly used to make breads, used as a soup thickener, or for baked goods. Corn flour and cornmeal can easily be made with your grain mill using popcorn kernels or other dried corn kernels. To make the flour less coarse, you may need to run it through the grinder a few times. 
Number four is oat flour. Oat flour has many purposes. It can be used in baking recipes as a thickener or breading, or it can be used to add some whole grains into a recipe. I add oat flour to my smoothies as well as in soups. When making oat flour, use old-fashioned oats. Simply place a half a cup to one cup of oats in the blender and pulse on high until it has a flour consistency. Use a spoon to move the flour around and pulse it again on high to ensure that all oats are ground. Number five is almond flour. Almonds can be blanched and ground, skins removed, to use in baking. The fat and moisture from the almond will be transferred to the baked goods to prevent that dried out taste. It's best used in sweet baked goods such as brownies, cookies, and cakes. To make almond flour, place half a cup of blanched almonds in a food processor or grinder and pulse several times until a medium fine textured meal forms. Then add the ground almond meal to a clean flour sifter and sift. Place any large particles of almonds back in coffee bean in the coffee bean grinder and pulse again. Sift the remaining almond meal. Tip: If you overprocess the almond flour, it will turn into almond butter, a delicious spread to add to your breads. All right, guys. So that is well. That's uh, some great alternatives there for flours. So I know you know that there are people out there who cannot store a lot of the survival foods because of uh, you know because of gluten. And it's not because it's just hey I, I don't want to eat a gluten diet. Some people just they have they get really really sick when they eat gluten. And so uh, you know there's wanting to be some alternatives there. Like what can I do? I mean there's dehydrated things. I know like Legacy Foods sells some gluten free stuff, but uh, you know what do you what do you do? You know for the most part. And uh, I remember talking with someone that said. Uh, you know, th- their family member had this issue and we talked a little bit about, you know, beans, you know, pinto beans are very, very cheap. You can store them very easily in five gallon buckets with mylar bags and O2, um, O2 absorbers or oxygen absorbers. And, uh, you know, then you just need a grinder. Now you definitely want to have a good grinder. And uh, we've talked about that recently as well. Uh, you know, because if, uh, you know, you can have the electrical one, but if you, if the electricity is out for whatever reason, you want to be able to use uh, a, a crank or a hand grinder that, uh, that can grind your, uh, you know, your beans or whatever it is that you are wanting to, uh, to grind up. So definitely this is a jumping off point for a lot of people who are looking for alternatives to flour and to, uh, to wheat berries and those types of things. And so, you know, let this be a jumping off period or a place where you can go. And if you're someone who is looking for, uh, you know, some gluten free options, um, go check out some of these links that she provided. So like the, the gluten girls, go check a gluten free girls. You can go check that link out and, uh, you know, get a little bit more information on all of that. And there's other grind, other, other grinders. I'm looking at the word grinder, but it's a link. I was going to say there's other links here as well that you can go check out. So, uh, that's over at readynutrition.com and definitely go check that one out. 
Well, guys, that's it for episode 307 and another week of podcast episodes in the book. Hey, I just want to say thank you so much for hanging out with me all week long. From the bottom of my heart, I do appreciate all of the listeners out there. Uh, If you have not connected with me, I'd love to be able to connect with you uh, in one way or the other. I'm on all the social medias. uh, And so come over to the Facebook group. If you haven't done that, join that and be a part of what we're doing over there. And then if you are thinking, if you're still kind of on the fence about the the new ebook and access to the Prepper website forums, you know, maybe this weekend is the time that you do it. Uh, you know, it's a $6.49 ebook, and uh, that's just a one time purchase, and that gives you lifetime membership to the Prepper website forums. Really excited about what's going on over there. Not only are we talking about our micro businesses and, and uh, talking about, you know, how we can navigate and m- become better and help each other, but we're also talking about preparedness things as well. And so, really excited about all of that. So, maybe this is the weekend where you're say, you know what, I'm going to come over to the Prepper website podcast.com and I'm going to purchase Todd's new ebook. It's only $6.49 and then, you know, you get access to the forums and so you can be a part of that. And maybe if you're getting tired of Facebook or you're getting tired of what you're seeing out there, then you know that Prepper website is a safe place for you to come and uh, you know that I'm never going to sell your data and uh, you're you're good to go. It's never going to be taken away. A group or a page or whatever is not going to be shut down because they they post something that Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whatever doesn't like. And so uh, you know, just uh, think about that. And I'd love to have you over at the Prepper website. Uh, podcast forums and prepper website forums. Uh, you know, I'm just really excited about where that's all headed. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can head on over to the prepper website podcast.com and that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. All right, guys, with that, choose to live a more self reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next week, stay prepped and aware. Peace. <laughs>